This podcast brought to you by the Information Architecture Institute. Through education, advocacy, services, and social networking, the IAI has 1,400 members from 80 countries demonstrating the value of information architecture to the world at large. By the IDEA Conference. IDEA brings together the world's foremost thinkers and practitioners, sharing the big ideas that inspire, along with practical solutions for the ways people's lives and systems are converging to affect society. And by Boxes and Arrows. Visit boxesandarrows.com slash about slash participate to be a part of your peer-written journal. And special thanks to Axure, Moray, and iRise for their sponsorship of Boxes and Arrows, as well as the many other sponsors of the IDEA Conference. While information architecture took its name from architecture, it took very little else. This is not surprising, as the early days of the web were about making sites that supported the interaction between people and data. The obvious model back then was a library. A library is a space for humans to receive knowledge. But with the rise of social networks and the integration of community into most all online experiences, more architecture practices are directly transferable to design. Founder of Boxes Narrows and product manager at LinkedIn, Christina Woodkey, discusses why online spaces are no longer just about findability, but about falling in love, getting your work done, goofing around, reconnecting with old friends, staving off loneliness. You know, humans doing human things. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers. So let's talk about um, lessons from architecture. So a long time ago, I was seeing a presentation by Josh Porter. Um, Josh, can you, are you in the audience? Can you stand up and wave at people? Darn, he's not back from lunch. He is an amazing guy. There he is. So you should all corner him and ask him questions about interaction design and design because he's a very smart fellow. Um, he writes the blog, bocardo.com. And when I saw this, I went, oh my god, this is the equation I've been looking for to help me understand social. What it is, is behavior is a function of the person and the environment. And there's a reason this is really important. It's because we have no control over people. Their parents tried, they failed, they've moved on, they're acting kind of weird. But environment, that's what we do. We design environments. Uh, we design environments to create behavior. That is the heart of what we are really doing when we're creating social spaces. Um, so environment led me, of course, down the path of, well, what does it mean to design an environment? Isn't that what architects do? And having had that in my title on and off for a very long period of time, um, I became very drawn to architecture in particular. Um, and with social, uh, we've seen a lot of discussion about whether or not social is actually the new third place. There's this uh, theory that you know you have home, you have the office, and you have a place where you're you're with people you care about, and that's the third place. And that during, uh, since World War II, we've kind of lost the pubs and the bowling alleys, etc. We're kind of locked up in our homes and our houses, and we don't really have a place to to reach out. And then the internet was born, and suddenly we're you know going on message boards and we're chatting and we're finding other people to talk to and to reach out to and to restore our humanity. So, um, so architecture, I thought, well, let's, let's check out architecture. Let's find out what it's all about. You know, um, it basically started with a cave. We found something rough to shelter ourselves and started painting on it. Um, much like the web, we started very roughly. We moved on to actually building our own spaces for ourselves when we couldn't find a cave. Um, much like on the web, we made a few crude efforts to create a, a personal spot for ourselves. And then we got into the Stone Age cities where we actually said, hey, we can make rectangular shapes, we can connect them, and we can be together. Um, and, uh, you know, basically a house could be used as a house or it could be used to worship a god. It was a rectangle. We were all good. Makes me think of blogs sometimes um, or Yahoo. Um, kind of gathering them together in a human fashion. So architecture seemed like a decent metaphor. I could keep running with this. Um, then I found this guy, Vitruvius, and there's a wonderful talk at South by Southwest, and I'm going to forget her name. I'll, I'll try to recall it by the end of this talk or put it up. Um, but she turned to Vitruvius, who was the first real architect um, in written history. He wrote 10 books on architecture, and he talked a lot about firmitas, utilitas, and uh, venistas. I'm sorry, my, I have no Latin. Um, I barely have English. Um, so the first concept, firmitas, was, is durability. And durability will be assured, Vitruvius teaches us, um, when foundations are carried down to the solid ground, materials are wisely and liberally selective, and things are centered correctly. Um, Frank Lloyd Wright really got this, believe it or not, despite his uh, leaky house concept. He was hired to build the imperial palace 
in Tokyo. And he's from the Midwest, like I am. And in the Midwest, we don't have so many earthquakes. So he was very, very anxious about earthquakes. He was very worried about them because he had never really lived through one. So he had to build this hotel in Japan that was notorious for it. And um, there was an earthquake shortly after this opened. And it was one of the only buildings that didn't fall down. And this happened for many reasons. He built um, durability into this building. He made sure the bottom of the posts were strong enough so that when it shook, um, the weight was distributed. This beautiful reflecting pool actually ended up being incredibly useful because in Japan, when they have earthquakes, almost everything burns. Fires break out, and wood is the major building material. So they had this reflecting pool that they could actually use for water to quickly tr put out any fires. Um, he uh, took the, uh, the structures, you know, the pipes and everything, and instead of having them uh, encased in concrete, which is the traditional method, he had them loose with wound joints so that when the wall moved, the, uh, the pipes moved. Um, so he did a lot of things that allowed, um, when the earth suddenly moved around, his building survived it. And then later people grew bored with it and ripped it down, but that's a different story. Um, so when we're building and we think about durability, we should think about technical earthquakes. So um, I have something I really hate for many reasons, um, if you'll excuse a, a quick uh, side trip, um, which is when people put the label inside the the box, right? When you have a search box and you don't have any room for your label, um, as you see sort of up in the right, and they say movies, actors, my architect director genres. The reason it says my architect in there is because I was doing a search for my architect, and I'm so fast and my connection's so slow that I can actually type what I'm searching for in that box before the JavaScript to remove it goes away. So I end up searching for um, labels a lot on the web, especially when I'm at home and I'm downloading movies illegally. Um, so it's something to think about. Like, we, we think everything's going to work perfectly, but what happens when that, that script doesn't clear properly? And by the way, fun fact, um, labels inside that box reduce the usage of that box by something like 60%. I think you talked to Luke or, or Eric. We've done a lot of testing on, on that back at the Yahoo days. Um, but what does it mean when you're searching for something? Could we build that back infrastructure to make sure that we pulled out that common text out of any search terms for the few times when the JavaScript doesn't load properly? There's a, with social, we have um, social earthquakes. This is the problem with planning for uh, surprise things. Planning for surprise is almost, um, what do you call it, uh, a thing that's not possible to do. But um, with LinkedIn, when we were designing for groups, um, there are a lot of recruiters on LinkedIn, which makes a lot of sense. LinkedIn has lots and lots and lots of professional people, right? So who are the people who are going to be abusive characters in the system? Possibly. We love our recruiters. They're very good dear to us. But sometimes they behave in ways that the group doesn't approve of. Um, like posting jobs everywhere, including in discussions and in news and putting in RSS feeds of, uh, of uh, jobs into everywhere. So uh, we just added this cute little button here, if you can see it on the right, which is move to jobs. We created a job board. So instead of them getting a slap down, you know, your stuff is inappropriate, blah, 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 it just gets pushed nicely into the job board. And any user who sees a job that's in the wrong place can move it themselves. So we leveraged the social system. We saw a potential earthquake and we moved it. And then another one is um, spammers are very clever. This gentleman is not a spammer. He's a fine human being, but I was going through my inbox looking for a screenshot, so I want to apologize to Mahmoud. Um, but, but if he was a naughty spammer, if he was a naughty spammer, I could report him as spam. Um, what's interesting is um, we often think in black and white. We think, oh, somebody's a spammer, and they're going to send us Nigerian scams and phishing, or somebody's going to be a good guy and a real person. But we don't think about all these gray areas. There's actually a lot of people who aren't really officially spammers because they're not sending out 50,000 um, emails. What they are is sort of um, bad characters. So what they might do is say, uh, hi, Christina, will you invest in my you know, small startup um, you know, and it's, that's not a bad character, but I don't really know them. I don't really know why they're, they're approaching me. So we have the, I don't know this user. And if a certain percentage of people are saying, I don't know this person, we know they're not really making real relationships. We know that they're probably misbehaving. Um, instead, if you get a, like 70% of people are saying, I don't know you, and they're asking to connect, you're probably not using LinkedIn the way it was supposed to be used. So we have a couple different things. And if you think about Frank Lloyd Wright with the way he approached, he had a lot of redundancy, a lot of levels of support to survive the earthquakes. And when you're designing social systems, you have to think about the same thing. So 
Um, I'm, I'm a, a fiend for checklists, so this is just a very short one, but on the technical level, I like to think about execution. Um, can my web developer actually build this thing? I know that somebody can. I know that there are people who write books on CSS who can build this, but can the guy I'm actually working with build this and by deadline? Maintenance. Okay, now they've built this incredibly complicated thing. Um, when they've left the company and somebody else has come in, can they actually keep this alive? You know, can they figure out how the script was built? Can they extend it? Can they upgrade it when all the new browsers come out? Um, scale. Uh, what happens when you're suddenly, it's a Monday and you've been written up in TechCrunch and there's tons of people hitting the site and stuff isn't loading? Um, bandwidth, you know, same thing. What happens when things go wrong, when the earthquakes occur? And then with social, some of the earthquakes, I think, are, um, I don't like to call them idiots, although sometimes they are, so I go innocence idiots. So people don't really know what they're doing, and they're just kind of blundering in. How do you make sure that they can kind of recover from those blunders? Trolls, which are people who show up just to make trouble, and every social site has them. Spammers, those are the formal people who actually would like to send you some porn or Nigerian scammers, et cetera. You know, they're very, very good. They're smarter than we are. It's, we're constantly at war. And then criminals. Um, by criminals, I mean individuals who actually probably want to exchange fake software or uh, download movies for free. I mean, social really enables a lot of um, stuff that's not actually legal. And you may personally believe that the Pirate Bay is uh, an important institution of free speech, but um, if your ISP is located in America, that causes you some trouble. So um, you have to support all these different actors who may behave in ways that uh, you're unprepared to deal with. So convenience, that's another um, concept. It's sometimes referred to, to as um, commodity. There's a lot of different translations of Vitruvius. And uh, I think we all know this one, right? For a sentence, no hindrance to use. That's Vitruvius's word. That could have been Jacob Nielsen's word. This is essentially usability in a lot of ways. Um, Frank Lloyd Wright is, um, he's a fireball, you know? He built these things called Usonian houses, and they were the houses for the everyday man, everybody, right? And they were supposed to be under $5,000, and they were very beautiful, and they were built to a human scale. The roofs were low. You could, you know, reach the counters and everything. It was supposed to be this beautiful space. And there are no dang closets in the thing, you know? They, you, there's no closet space. The kitchens are small because he wasn't really interested in cooking. So, um, but they're very, very beautiful. And so people who move into them and live in them um, basically choose that in the Frank Lloyd Wright way. So sometimes I think we get a little caught up on usability, but are we also thinking about the beautifulness of the experience and people who want to have a beautiful experience? Maybe some things don't necessarily have to be utterly usable for everybody. I'm going to have a lot of questions in this talk because as I dug deeper and deeper into architecture, I realized there are a lot of mysteries in what we're trying to do. And I'm hoping you guys will step up and have some answers that I haven't thought of. Um, the other thing about social is I think we're not thinking about new things that we could do, new usability problems we could be solving because it's social. So this is a Facebook inbox, and it probably looks like a lot of you guys' Facebook inbox. I only have two humans in here. There's a ton of this. Now, how come there's only two human beings I'm actually connected with, and one of them looks like Yahoo, but it actually is a human, um, in, in this inbox? Facebook knows the difference. They know if you're an events, they know if you're a bot, they know if you're an app, they know if you're a real person. Why don't they give me a tool? Like, where's my drop-down that says, show me, show me humans, you know? And this poor guy, he's like, he doesn't even know how he's getting half the stuff. And of course, he replies to all, and I get not only the bot, but the guy who's mad at the bot in my inbox. <laughs> so um, I would call that a convenience issue for me, anyway. So um, this is Frank Lloyd Geary. Um, I hope most of you have heard of him. If you haven't, you have hours of pleasure on Google Image Search or Yahoo Image Search, your image search of choice. Um, but I think it's very funny that he says, Bill Bow did not leak. I was so proud, you know. He's built all these really radical, magnificent buildings over and over again. And um, all of them have leaked up till now. There's, he says a great talk on TED. Um, and he says he, he had a commission out for MIT. And he was, um, the MIT guys came out to Bill Bow to meet with him to talk about this new building he was going to build. And it was raining like cats and dogs. And the, and the MIT guys kept walking around and looking in all the corners and looking for the buckets. They were convinced this leaked. And they were trying to, to rat him out. And he tells this story about Frank Lloyd Geary where somebody calls Frank and he says, uh, you know, Mr. Jones has rain pouring down on his head. And Frank says, Madam, tell him to move his chair. And he told that to one of his clients, and it didn't get a laugh then either. Um, so, uh, so I think that that's another thing that we have to think about a little bit is um, how fiercely are we going to adhere to these laws of usability if we're really trying to 
stretch ourselves? Are we a little too worshipful um, of, of these principles? Um, Frank says, um, he calls it the then what problem. You know, you solved all the problems, you did all the stuff, you made nice, you loved your clients, you loved your materials, you loved the city, you're a good guy. You're a good guy, guys. So what? What did you bring to it? We're talking table stakes, you know, durability, usability. Aren't we past that? Haven't we figured out how to make a page load? What are we really going to bring to it that's so much more than just functioning, you know? I mean, yes, there are days when we can't even do that. We've all seen the fail well, but what are we doing beyond that? And it's the third principle of Vitruvius, beauty, or sometimes it's translated as delight. I kind of like delight because it suits us a little better than just beauty, but... Um, but when the appearance of the work is pleasing and good taste, and when the members are in due proportion according to the correct principles of, of symmetry. Um, so there is a very famous modernist called Mies van der Rohe, and he said less is more. And he's the reason we have all these buildings. Um, so to copy Luke, who here thinks this is beautiful? Okay, some people think it's beautiful. A lot of people think modern buildings are very, very gorgeous and very, very beautiful. Other people feel rather oppressed by them. Um, Robert Venturi, who wrote Learning from Las Vegas, said, less is a bore. Who here thinks this is beautiful? <laughs> About the same, strangely enough. You know, um, Beauty is contextual. Beauty is your point of view. Beauty is what you feel. Um, beauty is definitely time-based. Beauty is definitely fashion-based. Um, it changes all the time. So when we talk about MySpace, um, they've worked to try to offset their criticism. You know, they've got these little templates. So I, I set up a profile and I can click through and it'll make sure that the font and the color and the background all kind of fit together. But there are still people who spend hours and hours. I just, I love his username, Dingleberry McDougalberg. <laughs> And he's clearly put a lot of quality time <laughs> making this page look exactly how he wants it to look. And it's beautiful to him. This is, this is not a bore. This is definitely not a bore. It's a lot of things, but it's not a bore. So um, it's a copyright uh, violation. Um, <laughs> but, it, but, it, but he cares about it. And it's interesting because uh, Amy Jo Kim, who uh, I recommend you all follow, you can put an at in front of that and it'll work or uh, you check out her slides. She talks about gaming mechanics, and one of the things is customization um, creates loyalty, creates lock-in. It's very important to people. Uh, Stuart Brand's How Building Learn. Um, over and over again, you see track houses, and people start painting them. They start building additions to them. Our human nature is to, to interact with the shape and make it beautiful to us to how we feel. And um, the alternative to that is, again, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright, poor Frank. Um, he, I, I, I was watching the Ken Burns documentary about him, and there's a story that he went over to this woman's house. He had designed a, a house for her, and it had been built. And he went into her dining room that she had all set up for dinner, and he moved the table, reoriented and moved all the chairs to where he thought they should go. And I have to ask you, you know, ask you, when we're doing this, are we doing the equivalent of, of Frank Lloyd Wright saying, guess what, we know what's beautiful for you, and we are going to move those chairs back. We're not going to let you have this rich um, experience that might get us sued. So um, I want to do something. I just want to take five minutes. Come on, these are our boys. Usable, useful, desirable, beautiful, durable, convenient. Same thing. So um, I want you to turn to somebody nearby and talk about a project for about just a couple minutes. Um, are you working on the beautiful, the convenient, or durable problem? And then when I say stop, I'd like a couple people to grab a mic. Uh, maybe Russ can help me find a mic. And tell us, are you working on one of these problems, and how are you working on solving it? Do you have a good solution to that? So uh, just turn to somebody near and talk about how you're making your site beautiful or durable or convenient for people. Bounce some ideas. Okay, I see we've uh, moved on. We're talking about our kids and our dogs now, so uh, <laughs> let's get ready. So Russ has a microphone, and if you think you have an insight about how you're, you know, you've come up with an idea to make your site beautiful or convenient or durable, then uh, put your hand up, and uh, and Russ will uh, speak okay. his choice. So uh, any hands? There we go. We got one way over there. The first brave person. Give him the really good book. Since all the authors are in the room, we should have a fist fight in a minute. <laughs> 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 
Um, so talking with my colleague here, I just met her now, and we had our little discussion, and I think we both have a really kind of good example, so I'll make mine quick and just have her talk about hers, because it's kind of unique. It's not really an interactive project, but I think it it's, it'd be interesting to talk about. So mine is a uh, redesign of a website, um, 1996. Uh, it's a government website. They gave um, all the departments in the government a copy of Dreamweaver and some templates and said, go nuts. And now they've got a mess, and now we're trying to migrate over to a CMS. So they don't want beautiful. They just want it to be clean. They don't want convenient. They're, they're happy with uh, going through the pain to make this work. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to make it durable. I'm trying to create standards so they can take all this content that all these hundreds of thousands of people have created over the last you know, what are we, 13 years and trying to kind of bring all these within some in, within standards that are going to work for many years to come. So that's, uh, I think mine's more durable. It's not really beautiful. It's certainly not convenient. You're building for the centuries, though. Uh, and my project is actually, uh, as we were mentioning earlier, it isn't um, an interactive project yet. Uh, what it is is a cultural ethnography of a company that's merging. Um, so there's two organizations in the new company, and uh, so I'm doing ethnography uh, on both sides of the company, and the next, this is like the inside gathering phase of the design process, and then we're going to design an organization after that through a collaborative innovation project, but right now what we're doing is building for the future, so hopefully what will, won't happen would be like a Daimler-Chrysler situation, which was never a merged organization. Uh, what it was was two separate organizations, so it's, and we had a disagreement about whether or not it's actually beautiful. I mean, it might be beautiful, it's definitely going to be durable, but it, from an aesthetic perspective, not so much, but from an organizational design perspective, probably, hopefully, beautiful. I think there's something else here that's coming, which is this, um, I think it's going to be con convenient. You're really working to make sure this is usable by the people that have to live with it. And I feel like a lot of what we are architecting is so often organizational structures and support structures. We're never just architecting the, the website. We're always creating architectures that support the human beings that are involved in it. So um, beautiful is always going to be controversial, but I think you're hitting all three. Um, do we have another person over yeah. there? You, you want somebody on the other side of the room, don't I you? I want somebody on the other side of the room because I want to see you run. Can you run by me? Uh, I want to watch. No. You, you took me from being there. Very we go. Proud. She's all the way over there. You took me from being very proud of showing my book to be very embarrassed. Thank you. <laughs> all right. The website that I'm working on, the project, it's um, the main users. It's our electronic engineers. So the one thing that I found is they don't want the beautiful. Well, what's beautiful to them is obviously different from me. I, I prefer, you know, I said, why can't this be about shoes? But it's not. So I had to, the, mostly it is about convenience. It's the, it's provide, give me all my options without overwhelming me. Don't do me any favors. Don't give me big, beautiful buttons and tell me to click here with arrows. Give me my options. Don't insult my intelligence. And that's, that's basically just, it's been more about how do I provide all this content, which there's a lot, a lot of places to go without overwhelming them, but then showing them, these are all your options, this is what you can do, you decide what you do next. I think that also speaks to durability a little bit. If you have a lot of options and a lot of content, you've got to ask yourself what's going to happen when there are 50 more of them as well. So you've got the extensibility. And again, beauty is going to be in the eye of the beholder. We, why don't we grab one more? Anybody in the middle? Oh, we've got Cindy over there and we've got a guy in the back. You choose where you want to run. This is a conspiracy. <laughs> it is a conspiracy. Hi. Um, so I'm working on a, a project that well, actually it just launched a week ago, and uh, we had to deal with an interesting aspect of durability that I've never had to deal with before as a user experience designer quite in this way. And the game was a, an NFL picks game, and we wanted to make it more engaging, not just this list of data that usually you see in these kinds of games, and it was for showtime. thing is, we made the, uh, the interface was so fun that we realized that people would have so much fun clicking on it that we, they might break it. So we had to provide, as well as not knowing, for example, whether there would be a thousand users register or a hundred thousand users register. So, on a technical level, we had to work with the uh, engineers to make sure that you know we could get uh, handle the capacity at certain points 
without any sort of you know ability to be able to judge that very accurately in, in advance. But from a UI perspective, we um, had to think about things that we could do in the interface, which were basically faking the delay in certain interactions so that people wouldn't click too fast on the game. Because there were a lot of um, flash, like 16 flash widgets embedded on a JavaScript page, and it was very like responsive. And so when you click on little navigational items, all, a lot of Ajax calls, we had to bring down these little things that would say, loading, you know, and it wasn't really, it didn't need that time to load, but we just wanted to make sure that <laughs> people wouldn't click too fast to actually to break it. And we did that in a number of places. So that was a, an aspect of think of durability from the point of view of the uh, interactions with the interface. So I want to ask, does anybody here not know why the typewriter looks like it does? Does everybody know the story of the QWERTY typewriter? Okay. It, this really reminds me of the same problem, which is the keys kept jamming when the secretaries were typing. You actually had to put some interference to keep people from going as fast as they can. And I assume that at some point that can be taken down so people can go faster. But um, it's, it's, it's not a very surprising problem. It's definitely an earthquake we're designing for. So somebody in the back had a hand up, and he didn't get a book. I'm going to move along the talk to so we don't have time, but I think he deserves a book for suffering. <laughs> okay. So... We've been leaning on the Romans, and the Romans, the, you know, Vitruvius is an easy guy to work with. Um, so I thought, well, let's keep going deeper into architecture. Let's find out more stuff. Um, and then I found out that um, I was having a hard time getting lessons from architects, and it was very strange. So the reason I, 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 I went to uh, Christopher Alexander, like we all do, I was like, wow, this is fantastic. I read these things, and I was like, you know, no building ever feels right to the people in it unless the physical spaces are congruent with the social spaces. And I was like, that, oh my God, that's perfect. That's how I design, you know, anybody designs LinkedIn or, uh, or Facebook or activity streams. You know, if you have um, a stream of data, it should look like a stream. I was like, okay, this is a pattern I can apply directly. I don't even have to work very hard to apply it to what I'm doing. And this one, much more so, um, degrees of publicness, right? So people are different and the way they place their houses in a neighborhood, is this cough drop giving me a lisp? Yeah. Um, people are different in the way they want to place their houses in the neighborhood is one of the most basic kinds of differences. So if you think about it, there's all these people in a social space, and some people are super hyper-social, and they want to be right in the middle of everything, and they want all the gossip, and they want all the latest, and they want to tell everybody everything they're doing. And then there's other people who want to sit back, they want to digest, they don't want every single little thing that they're doing. And again, I was like, holy cow, this applies directly to what I'm doing right now. So every other piece of architecture should work just as well. And then I wrote up my uh, talk description, and I said, it to Russ because I was convinced I was really on to something. Um, but I didn't know that most architects are artists. I don't know when this happened. They stopped being service people. So um, they're really considered about deconstructionism and the theory behind it and how are they reacting to the last thing that they saw. And um, it was harder to translate. Um, this is uh, Le Corbusier, who's one of the core modernist thinkers, he did these amazing um, houses, you know, and his five principles were, you know, Pilates elevating the building, free pan, free facade, long horizontal windows, roof garden. I, I can pull out one of those to apply to MySpace, but not a lot more. So this was um, a little more of a struggle for me. But I think I found some things in more modern architecture that we can apply, and I'm hoping you guys will, um, at the end of this, come up with some more. Um, I hope that we'll continue talking to each other. So here are the radical ar architects and their lessons. Um, space. This one, um, this is not very radical. This is the Alhambra. But um, one lesson we know about space that we see a lot is that space is created by, not by you, you put something there and you call it space, but you build buildings around it and you close it. So all the Spanish spaces have these beautiful patios that are essentially negative space. They're built by building buildings around it. And um, I've been building on a, a model of social architecture, which is based on the idea that if you place these things correctly, if you place an identity system that really works, and, uh, and Christian and Aaron are going to be talking about that more later, but as they talk about it, think about how are you creating a social space by the objects that you are placing. So when you create your identity system, is it going to be robust? Is it going to be a Twitter one-line profile? Is it going to be an eight-page questionnaire people fill out, like Facebook? When you do activities, you know, what are the things people do? Do they collect things together? Do they share? Do they trade? Um, is it like Flickr when they're, you know, 
exchanging photos? Um, what are the activities they do? Because that will shape the social space. It will make it more business-like or more social. And then relationships. Um, Luke's talk, which I'm and I'm going to talk about some of this as well, is um, you know, is it asymmetrical? Is it symmetrical? You know, do you have to have a formal handshake? Do you actually have to um, firm it up or not? For example, just recently um, on LinkedIn, you know, you had to if you wanted to invite somebody to connect with you, um, you could put any group down. And um, we uh, used to have it that we didn't validate that against what you had on your profile, right? Because um, maybe you guys both belong to the interaction design, you know, uh, the Information Architecture Association. And good, God damn it, I founded this thing and I can't get the name right. That's embarrassing. Um, the Institute of Information Architecture, I did say I was on all Institute of Fed, right? We covered that, okay. Um, the Institute of Information Architecture, maybe you guys are both members of that, but you haven't on your, put it on your profile, and we still want you to connect because you belong to the same organization. But then later, um, as people fill out their profile more, we actually started validating it. Also, it was a hole for spammers. So um, you have to think about that relationship, how much you're going to validate, how much of the offline are you going to reflect on the online, how much of those pieces do you need to put in place. So. Um, one of those things we have a problem with is empty spaces. When you first build a group, there's nothing there. And one of the things that we discovered that ended up being really useful was to just allow the owner of the group to put an RSS feed in, and then news started flowing in. So that when people came to the space, instead of being a flat, open, empty plain like the prairies of Iowa, um, it actually had stuff there. It had trees growing. It had news stories. And then people started writing, you know, asking questions because they didn't feel like it's completely abandoned. So as you create those social spaces, you want to think about how am I going to make those objects make people feel safe and warm and comforted and like in a cave? Um, I did promise Gaston Bachelard in this talk, who is uh, a famous French phenomenologist, and he talks very, very much about the importance of spaces like attics and caves and nests because we as humans don't like to feel so open. We're like little bunny rabbits, you know. We're afraid we're going to be killed by something. And we actually feel safer. And I think that that um, applies to online as well, that if we go into an empty space, we're like, woo, I'm out of here, you know. There could be a wolf around the corner. So, But if we come in here and we see their stuff and we see there's other people, we feel a little more comfortable, we settle in. So as you're designing especially really new social spaces, you want to create these, these emotional resonances of, of home, of nest, of comfort. So site, um, architects build things on the earth, in the ground, near trees, and that really affects um, the nature of it. So if anybody was our architect, I would say it's Julia Morgan. She designed Asilomar, the uh, Institute of Information Architecture, was founded at Asilomar, and she belonged to um, a version of the uh, arts and crafts movement called the First Bay Tradition. And they believed in using natural material from the site traditional craft, you know, arches and cantilevers, et cetera, integrate into the surroundings, and each building be a unique work of art. And I would even recommend that maybe we should think about that as our design principles. Um, but again, you have to think about what does it mean to respect the site? And I think context, and again, I'm going to bet money that Aaron and Christian will hit this at some point, context is our site. So when you're in Facebook, you're personal, LinkedIn, you're professional. How is the profile going to reflect that, that site, that ground you're building on? On Facebook, you're going to have games, and you're going to have the Colbert Report, and you're going to have all that fun stuff from your personal life. But you can't just do that on LinkedIn. You have to actually have you know, your resume and maybe your uh, professional you know, slides from the talks you give, et cetera. So when you think about context, it's almost like the very earth you're, you're building on. And how are you taking advantage of how people think about that space and what they're walking into? Um, I find Twitter very interesting because it seems to almost have no space. It's almost like building on the moon sometimes. But um, it'd be worth contemplating, is there, is there something we could take from people's lives and how they think about the problem to, uh, to think about how we would design our own social spaces? Structure. Um, I love this, this quote. It's from um, Louis Kahn. And if you think of a brick, for instance, and you say to the brick, what do you want, brick? And the brick says, I like an arch. And you say to the brick, look, arches are expensive. And I can use a concrete lentil over you. Uh, what do you think of that brick? And the brick says, I like an arch. I know this sounds kind of goofy and poetic, but um, there are materials that have a shape and a nature. And you can push them against their shape and their nature. Um, but it's difficult. And so that structure that you're building is so absolutely critical for behavior. 
So I talk a lot about virality in other talks I give, and I talk about how you increase reach. And so again, to speak to structure as um, Luke was talking about it, um, how you build those connections between people are the structure or social site and will shape the social site, um, site structure. So email this, you think about it. Um, you can put a sharing tool on, which is just email this, right? And what happens is um, people will sit there and they'll type out an email from their memory or maybe you can connect to the address book and they'll click it and they'll go through their 200 emails and they'll pick one or two. It will only go to one or two people, but the people who get this email thing will really like it because it was designed just for them because there was a lot of effort to make that connection. If instead you click a button on this object you want to share and it goes to the news feed or network updates, this is a two-way handshake, right? So I asked you to connect. You said, yes, I can connect. So we know that these are people at least that you know. We don't know if this content is the best content for you, but at least these are people you know. So there's a fairly high level of connectiveness to that. Um, if you think about Flickr, you know, you've got connections and you've got contacts. And um, I was speaking to um, a person who works over at Flickr, and they said there's actually quite a, a, a good deal more activity in these very small two-way handshakes because it's parents uploading their kids, and then the grandparents come, and they look at it, and they comment, and they go back and forth, and, the and, you know, and then the parent says, oh, yes, they're getting so tall, and the grandparent says, I can't wait to see you, and then the person says, next Thursday, and so you have a thread that's like 50 items instead of two items. Um, then you have groups and asymmetrical follow. And with asymmetrical follow like Twitter, you have, you know, um, a celebrity on Twitter and they just post something and it goes to 500 people and maybe people respond, maybe they don't, but there's no conversation back and forth. It's a broadcast medium. So when you're designing this space, you should ask yourself, um, how is the structure going to actually create a relationship? Um, Am I going to create a relationship where it's very tight, everybody knows each other, there's not a lot of reach, but everybody cares a lot about each other and are reflecting back and forth? Or is it going to be a broadcast space where I can reach thousands of people, it's highly valuable to a small group that's reaching out, but you're not going to have that back and forth? This concept is called servant and served spaces, again from uh, Louis Kahn. He spent a lot of time thinking about pipes and air ducts, and he said that basically, well, he hated them, um, but he decided to take them apart, and he put uh, all the pipes and ducts into these long, this is um, a hospital built, he put them in these very long, narrow things, and then he had these huge, gorgeous glass windows, right, and it's very, very beautiful, you know, you get all the pipes and stuff out of the way, and suddenly you have room for wall-to-wall -wall glass, and of course, building materials help with that, too. There was actually a problem with this because uh, these huge wall-to-wall -wall glass let in too much light and these offices were unbearably hot and they couldn't afford to keep them cool. So sometimes a great idea has some, um, some downside to it. Um, but he was trying. So when we think about servant and serve spaces, I think um, in social spaces, we're already doing that. We're already separating them very intensely. So, you know, the servant spaces are really your settings. You know, you go off into the settings page assuming you can actually find it and then you, you know, click all the dots and you make things the way you want it to. And the servant pages, the actual bookmarks, and the services pages, the settings, and they're kept very far apart from each other. But what if this is a place where we should move away from architecture and be a little more like Facebook, where you see the item and you actually can hide it right there. Guess what? That person is boring. They talk too much. Let's just get rid of them. Or uh, with Twirl, where you can quickly, you know, your tools are right there. You can change your settings. You can save people. You can add them very quickly in line. Um, maybe it's not always good to follow that architectural principle, but at least we're thinking about it now. What on the website is a servant and what on the website is served? So this is a very famous building, um, the Pompidou Center in Paris. And again, they pulled all those services, those pipes out, and they became this incredibly beautiful aspect of the architecture. Um, they're hard to maintain. There's a reason you put concrete around it so that they don't get destroyed by weather. Um, Lots of wonderful radical ideas that are problematic in real life, but at least people are trying. Um, I think this is interesting. Um, statistics are almost like the pipes and the services. Usually you only have them know how well you're doing, right? And you go up to the analytics guys and they write some SQL, unless they make you write SQL yourself. And, um, and you get these data and you're using it really only as an infrastructure project. But what happens if you actually manifest them in the interface? You know, and then the user can say, wow, look, I had a photo that went up high. And it becomes a feedback system. So they go, wow, you know, those kinds of photos are the photos that people will look at. And those are the days I can get um, interested. And just seeing what people are doing in a very simple way is exposing those services in a way that intrigues people and pulls them in. 
So views. Um, this is a surrealist apartment um, built by Le Cuspicier. And what's interesting is, I mean, it really is literally a surrealist apartment. There's a mirror in one room that only has half a mirror. Like, it has the whole frame and only half of it's filled up. But one of the things he did is he built views in which you only get half of the thing you're looking at. So back there is the Champ de uh, the, the Arc de Triomphe, sorry. Um, and it's, uh, you can only see half of it. And it's like that. Like, you go to the other side of the apartment, and you can only see the very pointy bit of the Eiffel Tower. Everywhere you're going around, you only get little bits and pieces. And so you're constantly intrigued, and you would go over to the edge and take a look out at it. Um, and I think activity streams are a little bit that way. And I think something um, really interesting, and I'd be very curious to know how it's doing, uh, that happened recently, is Yahoo Mail started pulling an activity stream um, in when you go to your mail. So you go to your mail like every day, and then suddenly you get this glimpse of the Eiffel Tower in the corner of your eye. Wait, things are happening. Luke's uploaded seven photos. Um, activity streams can either be a full you know, view of everything that's going on, or they can be a partial obscured view where you're, you're titillated and you're kind of pulled in. So as we think about how we're showing things, we can either um, give people a field view or we can give them a partial view depending on what we want them to do. It can be incredibly effective when we're working on sign-up. So Twitter recently redesigned their, their, uh, their homepage for people who aren't signed up, and they created views of what's actually going on in the network. And then just now, um, when I was listening to the speaker, he was talking about Second Life. I went to Second Life, and bang, it's the same thing. What's happening here? Can I get a glimpse of it? Does it intrigue me? Does it pull me in? Um, how can we use views into the social activity to um, excite people and, and, and uh, titillate them and give them delight. Proportion is another concept that I, I found rather intriguing because I think it solves um, a problem a lot of us have. This is more design than architecture, but still, um, when they were talking about, again, learning from Las Vegas and all the signs in Las Vegas, um, everybody complains about them. They're huge and dreadful, but maybe it's just a bit they're proportional. You know? um, you need some. You, you have a small building, you have a big sign. If they all fit together in a proportional way, they're actually kind of intriguing. I think the Golden Nugget is beautiful. So on MySpace, you have this is a humongous giant banner ad on the homepage. But when I go to MySpace, I'm there for the music, I'm there for movies. Um, it might make sense to actually have an ad that big. Much better might be Blip FM. Blip FM is um, basically Twitter for music. I highly recommend it if you haven't played with it. It's a really extraordinary site. But um, their, their advertisements are not only appropriate in that they're about celebrities and music, but they also fit into the overall design scheme. Um, the shape and size of the banner is very much the shape and, shape and size of the activity stream. The LREC is very much the same size as the, um, the stats box. Um, I would ask you guys, many of us are oppressed by ads. We're given ads. We know what size they are. Why do we design not thinking about them? Why do we just slam them in somewhere? What if um, the ad, like a site, created our rules of proportion? What if when we have an LREC, we know we need to create other shapes on that page so that everything comes together in a harmonious whole and the ad is actually part of the story that we're telling? Um, I think it's time to stop thinking of them as something that oppresses us and instead something to play with, uh, much like Louis Kahn's hated pipes. This is another concept that came out of learning from Las Vegas that I found really fascinating. It's this idea of speed. So architecture has been changed by the speed in which people pass through it. So in a medieval village, people were walking. I guess not very many people walk five miles an hour, maybe three miles an hour. But the streets are tight. There's a lot of decoration because you're moving so slowly past it. You can see those little gargoyles and every little architectural detail. Then when Frank Lloyd Wright came along, um, people were driving by, you know, in these small towns. They were going about 25 miles an hour. The cars weren't necessarily all that fast, but also... And so suddenly the houses came back from the street, so you could see the entire thing. A lot of the details were lost, and it became more something that you, you drove by. And then, of course, our friend the Golden Nugget is perfect for going by at 60 miles per hour. So when you're designing your site, are you thinking about how fast people are experiencing it? Um, on LinkedIn, oh, sorry, this is not very clear. So it's almost the opposite. It's almost like you want people to slow down instead of speed up. So when, you're, when they're signing up, you know, get rid of all the extraneous junk. Let them fly through. You know, get them. Then, you know, they've started. They've gone down the process. We can pull them down to maybe 25 miles an hour. Let's get a little profile detail. But don't, run, don't stop them. Don't go from, you know, 60 to zero because then you'll blow the clutch. You know, let, 
pull them down slowly. And then when they finally arrive at the end of their journey, you know, you can have an experience with lots of detail that actually makes sense at a slower speed. So I think speed is something that we almost never consider as we're architecting sites, but speed varies widely. You don't experience Google the way you experience Facebook. So what could speed mean to your site? And then movement. I love this. This is a, a Frank Gehry move, building. And uh, he's been telling these wonderful stories about um, these statues, these Shiva statues, and how, you know, if you see a statue of Shiva out of the corner of your eye, you keep thinking it's moving. And he asked himself, could I make a building that's like that? Could I see it in the corner of my eye and think, hey, did that building just move? Um, and so he came up with this. I, I love the fact that this, they really are dancing. It just looks like Fred and Ginger. Um, and I started looking at these social sites, and I'm like, wow, there is no movement, except occasionally when you've got you know, an activity stream going by live. But it's just these horrible square boxes. And you know, I studied painting formally in art school. And usually we think of this thing called composition. And we want people's eyes to move like, you know, in a circle and then come into the middle. And instead it's like, you know, everything's just going down. Um, same thing with LinkedIn, going down. Although I have some secret new designs that are a little more lively that I'm seeing from the, uh, the, the, the design team there. I, I can't take credit. I'm not on the design team there. Um, it's not that it's not technically possible. Have we overhemmed ourselves in? This is um, a module on MySpace that's a, a game. And you know, it's very rich. It's a rich design. Um, can we do something richer with our composition? I looked at so many sites trying to find one site that followed painting's composition principles, and I couldn't do it. So, um, so the question then is for us, um, how are people moving through that space? Are they just, you know, can we, can we have dancing on our websites? Can we catch a corner of our eye and go, wow, this thing is alive and interesting? Um, can we go back further than architecture all the way to the fish? Frank Lloyd Wright's, been, or no, sorry, Frank Geary, all the Franks, has lately been inspired by going back to one of the most primitive creatures on earth, the koi, to inspire the beauty and the grace and the shape of his buildings. Could we build websites that were fish? I don't know. Um, I'm just going to suggest that you go. Uh, Yanni sent this to me recently. It's uh, to a story, and um, it's a it's a it's a moving site. It's uh, data that flies by, um, telling people's hopes and dreams. You don't see how alive it is when it's still like this, but it's interesting to think about how can we bring movement and life into our sites. I've been told to to wrap up, so I will leave you with this quote: um, To approach everything in a strictly methodical manner and not waver a hair's breadth from preconceived patterns until genius has been strangled to death and joy de vivre stifled from the system. That is the sign of our time. I would say that that's the sign of our time right now in information architecture, and we need to break the modern systems. So I'm not going to ask you for questions. I'm going to ask for ideas. Ideas! Ideas! We will go ahead and... We'll go ahead and take a couple of questions as you tear down and we bring Mary Newsom up. Great. So, uh, folks, if you have some questions, hands. I know she's a fast talker, isn't she? All right, well, then I'll stretch a little bit. Um, I would like to read uh, something and, and ask for a moment of silence. She's like the wind through my tree. She rides the night next to me. Come on, Patrick Swayze died last night. You people don't get this? Come on. Too soon? I'm sorry, what? It's like, How about, is it, is it, is it too soon Nobody for one of those? <laughs> Thanks, Christian. There's a, a question? Yeah? Thank, yeah, I was just wondering, um, just on your last point, you talked about uh, sites that even sort of suggest movement. I was just wondering if you had any sort of additional thoughts about how, um, you know, other than sort of like bringing back something like the blink tag, which like movement on websites basically ends up being really annoying a lot of the times. But I'm wondering how, if you have any examples or thoughts on how uh, information architecture and design can suggest movement. I will point out that the Geary building does not actually move or blink. So it's apparently possible to do it with the static building materials. Um, I do think we need to return to composition, and I think that we have done ourselves a disservice by separating out architecture and design too vigorously from each other, that um, when you can work at it very holistically, you can integrate some of those concepts. We build, some of us build, are building wireframes that basically just need color to go live. You know, let's take it all the rest of the way. Let's go ahead and, 
and design something that's coherent. If you are working at a higher level and your designs, you know, your wireframes aren't, um, they do really require a designer to help, then you want to brainstorm with your designer and bring up this idea. Um, composition is how you move through the space to arrive. So ask yourself, what's the priority of the page? How is a human being going to uh, think about it? How are they going to work through it? What, what catches their eye first? We're humans, so they're probably going to be caught by photos. Okay, what do those photos lead to? They lead to names. They lead to quotes. They lead to stories. You know, how are you going to move people through this site using the fact that they're intrigued, they're questioning, they're looking for something, whatever it is? How is that movement going to occur as opposed to the sort of flat consuming a data the way you read um, a column in a newspaper? Everybody loves to talk about newspaper design. What if instead they're teased and led and intrigued based on um, the way the site is unfolding for them? And I, I'm, I'm not kidding. I mean, I don't see any sites that are doing it. I would love to say this site and this site and this site, yeah. but I'm hoping you guys will go home and say, how am I going to make a dancing website? You know, it doesn't dance. It dances in the corner of your eye. You're pulled in. So I don't have a lot of obvious answers, but I think knowing how human beings try to figure things out is a very good hint so to what can be done. Get your, um, flash. Another question? Yeah. Uh, oh. yeah, I'm the one who has to walk. I'm sorry. I forgot. We'll get it. Question? Where was the answer? So are we having a dongle problem? Is that okay to say out loud in public? Dongle problem? might be. Um, a lot of uh, cutting-edge architects uh, moved in lockstep with uh, new methods and, and new materials. And a lot of, well, designers and IAs are encouraged to do the opposite and go towards standardization. And do you see that as a contradiction? See, I hope you had a big lunch because you're working. Um, I think that what's happening now actually is we're almost in better shape. Like the new Air apps are um, incredibly usable. They're easy to install. I think Twitter is making them more acceptable. And they allow for a rich desktop interface that also includes, you know, web materials. So we now have new materials. Are we embracing them? You know, are we playing with them? Are we trying to figure out with them? We shouldn't wait for our clients to ask that of us. It's very funny. Frank Lloyd Wright said um, the difference between an architect and a doctor is uh, a doctor can bury his patient, uh, his clients after they're dead. An architect can only plant vines. Um, you know, we, we need to interact with our clients and help them say, hey, let's not just copy Google, there's something really interesting here, it's very exciting, and we'll create, and then, and then have really good arguments for it. Like, we want the Air app because it updates all the time, which will cause people to check it over and over again, which will create lock-in, will create more interaction, for example, with an activity stream, or whatever it is. Um, and if it means that, you know, sometimes we stay up late uh, playing with Air to try to figure out what it can and can't do, um, once your children go off to kindergarten, I hear that's an option. Um, so... <laughs> Keep waiting for it. But, um, but I, we have to be excited by these new materials because they could let us finally realize our dreams. What I'm really scared about is our clients are going to teach us to stop dreaming. And when that happens, we have a problem. Oh, Speaking I, of I've been looking up here to see if it works. Servants and serve spaces. Um, uh, so you know then let's all about? applaud for Christina again because she did a fantastic job. Thank you. Well, the thing is, you need to be able to see. To hear even more presentations from the 2009 IDEA Conference, point your browser to boxesnarrows.com and click on the podcast link. There you'll find access to the iTunes feed and more information about each presentation. Our heartfelt thanks to the organizers and sponsors of the fourth annual IDEA Conference, the presenters, and of course to the global community. We look forward to feedback about future episodes that would be of greatest value to you, our listeners. <laughs>